podcast is brought to you with the support of Caseload from De Novo Business Intelligence. Hi and welcome back to the Hay Legal Podcast. We have a really interesting show coming up this week as Ali Thompson is in discussion with Paul Seals, the director at the European Institute of Peace in Brussels. Paul has had a very interesting career thus far. He is a lawyer by profession, but for more than 20 years, he has worked in conflict and post-conflict situations around the world, working with victims, governments and international organisations. Throughout the show, we find out what made Paul want to study law. Firemen or footballers or novelists or whatever you were thinking you were going to be. That's what I thought I was going to be. So I I didn't intend to study law at all. As you probably know, I was going to be a priest. (laughs) We then find out about Paul's internship at the United Nations. The honest truth is that a guy I'd done the Masters with phoned me up and he said, we need more people on this team, can you come? Nowadays, to do that, it's a much more competitive process. We also hear about Paul's five years in Guatemala, leading an investigation into the state's genocide of Mayan groups in the 1980s. Time to up sticks and I went off to Guatemala for five years, which was the obvious choice when you think about it. (laughs) And that was a matter of basically helping to mobilise indigenous communities that had been massacred effectively by the Guatemalan army. That was still by far the most interesting thing I've ever done. Subscribers to our CPD sessions will hear the full interview and further discussion in Paul's career on how he implements change and engages with different countries from his headquarters in Brussels. Also, a reflection on his chosen career path to date and his role as serving as a professor at St Andrews University. A lot coming up, so let's begin. So Paul, thanks very much for joining me today. Um, at Hay Legal, we're very interested in careers that have taken interesting paths. And I think I'd like to start by asking you what it was that made you want to study law in the first place. Hmm. Uh, what's a, a quick answer to that? Um, I didn't intend to study law at all. Uh, as you probably know, I was going to be a priest. I do know <laughs> So all the time you guys were thinking about being firemen or footballers or novelists or whatever you were thinking you were going to be. That's what I thought I was going to be. So I didn't even think about anything like that until I was about 20 when I decided not to do that. And then I went to Glasgow Uni and did a... Well, I'd done a philosophy degree in Rome, which didn't really prime you for the world in any practical sense, obviously. And then did an MA in Italian and Spanish at Glasgow and still was thinking, not really sure what happens at the end of this. Mm-hmm. And it was it was halfway through that. At that time, I don't. I think you can still do probably do the kind of MA, LLB kind of conversion thing or whatever. And that was it. I didn't have any great vision, uh, which isn't a, a very inspirational start, is it? <laughs> uh, um, no, I was really wondering what the hell I would do because I hadn't thought about it because, as I say, for most of my... Uh, kind of adolescence, I thought I knew what I was going to do. Um, so I had to work it out kind of later on. And I mean, the, the path I took afterwards probably made some sense in relation to that. But uh, at the time, it was really, in all honesty, saying, I wonder how I'm going to make a living. Mm. <laughs> and you started to make that living then after the diploma yeah. um, in a high street law environment? I did in the, in the glorious company of Car and Company uh, in the... Uh, I was in Muirhead and Bailiston mainly, uh, doing my traineeship there, which was great fun and good people. Yeah, all criminal, bar a bit of employment really, 
and an eight-month corruption trial where I, <laughs> where I learned an awful lot. <laughs> okay. And did you stay on after your traineeship or had your, had your thinking matured and you were thinking to move on elsewhere? Uh, no, I had kind of half decided in the middle of the second year that I would probably not want to stay on longer term. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the... Uh, well, to be honest, it was exciting. It was good laugh as well, and the company was always very good. But the cases, even at an early stage, were interesting, and I'd been lucky to do some small cases that I found interesting. But um, I had decided halfway through that I fancied to go and do a, a master's down in London. So I went down to UCL uh, in London and did a, a master's in public international law, which was partly human rights, partly international economic law and immigration and refugee law. Right, was that what? One year? Course. One year down there, yeah, uh-huh. 12 months, aye, full, full year. Right, aye. so what then, what happens after that? After that, again, you're looking for jobs, um, <laughs> usual story. Uh, it was a couple of options, I did a small thing at the UN, basically an internship um, for a few months, it was again... A bit of an eye opener, not always necessarily in a good sense. You kind of—it's like everything else. When you see the, the kind of sausage making process, it's not as as uh, what you necessarily thought of it from the outside. But it was very interesting. I was doing some stuff on on Kosovo and former Yugoslavia at the time, just for a few months. But then I got a job working back here in Edinburgh at the Scottish Refugee Council, and I became the legal director of that relatively quickly. Which was brilliant. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I did that for about two and a half years. And I was just full on doing asylum appeals uh, for people that had been refused. And it was very good. We had, a, uh, at the risk of being immodest, we held the best record of successful appeals for those two years. Because, But the bottom line was we were fully concentrated and that we could spend like 12 hours with one client, whereas most kind of private solicitors would be spending much, much, much yeah, less. So I just take you back when you talked about the internship at the UN. So mm-hmm. how... How does one go about accessing and achieving that? Well, I mean, it's different now. Uh, unfortunately, that's almost 30 years ago, isn't it? Or mm-hmm. 25 anyway. Um, at that time, uh, I mean, the honest truth to that story is that uh, a guy I'd done the Masters with had gone over and he'd been much more assiduous and knowledgeable about this. He was a friend from Canada. Uh, he's now back in Canada as a judge, but he... Um, had done all of his homework and got in very annoyingly when he was doing the Masters in London with me and he he had a plan to get to know all of the professors and get research programmes with them and internships and I literally had no idea that there was a whole uh, angle to be worked. Um, And so to be frank, I kind of uh, benefited from his uh, knowledge on that and he had ended up out there and he phoned me up and he said, we need more people on this team, can you come? And that was that. Um, and that was actually very good. Uh, it was, uh, but nowadays to do that, it's a much more rigorous and kind of official process. Um, I mean, there's still a lot of kind of. I've tried to make it less of a. a I don't know if that was a back scratching exercise that I benefited from. In a sense, it was, although he wasn't exactly a, a player in that sense. But he, I think nowadays. There's more discipline and rigour. People have to apply for those things. It's a very competitive process now. But, I mean, basically it's applications nowadays and, and, and fairly rigorous competition. So you, you, you were at the Scottish Refugee Council and then decided that it was time again for a 
Dream challenge. Dream top sticks, and I went off to Guatemala for five years, uh, uh, which was the obvious choice when of you course. think about it. <laughs> the, um, I mean, it was it was in a sense a relatively um, logical choice, although not obvious to anyone that wasn't uh, close at the time. But I mean, I had for years been interested in Latin American kind of politics and all of the stuff that got on it. If I was very interested, I was, in all honesty, also see watching the film Salvador in 19, whatever it was, 84 or 85 or something. Is that when that came out? Maybe 86. And uh, a friend of mine had already gone out there and basically, again, it was a situation of she was going to leave, did I want to take over some of what she was doing? And uh, that was that, went out there. So who were you working for there? So that's an interesting story itself. So out of the out of the civil war, the civil war in Guatemala started. People would debate it sometime in the first half of the nineteen sixties, between sixty two and sixty four. And through that, obviously, various guerrilla movements developed and everything else. And then, as the peace process uh, came to a conclusion, some of those movements began to develop their own kind of civil society or. Um, you know, legal practices and things like that. So one of them was, I think, called Centre for Legal Action and Human Rights. So that was exactly an attempt to make sure that human rights were vindicated through the courts and all of that rather than through conflict, etc. Um, and that was who I worked for. So I became the legal director there after a year or so. But the main part of the work was really through, from about halfway through the first year till the end of my time there, we worked on basically designing and carrying out investigations into the genocide that occurred during the war, uh, basically in one period in 81 to 82, arguably into 83. Um, And basically that was still by far the most interesting thing I've ever done, both, you know, socially, politically and legally. All of those things were coming together at the same time. And that was a matter of basically helping to mobilise communities. These were all indigenous communities that had been massacred effectively by the Guatemalan army through that period and really helping to organise them, in a sense, educate them about the legal system as well and to persuade them that there was possibly a value in putting any kind of trust in that, which is a hard thing to do when the only connection you've had with the state at all has been for them to come and massacre you. So it's a hard sell and uh, most of the communities didn't. We probably worked with about 70 villages over that period and at the end of the day about 25 came in in a kind of what you might call a class action but it was really it was a criminal case with 12 uh, villages involved in each one more or less um, and that was that so we worked at that and I left there in about 2001 and those guys continued with the cases and eventually they prosecuted the former president in 2013 he was convicted for genocide that's how long it takes mm. And then a suitcase full of money was taken to the Supreme Court and it was quashed, right. <laughs> which is also how it happens. Okay. Uh, and they retried it recently and unfortunately the former president died in between times. He was well into his 80s. But the court still upheld and said we recognise that the army was responsible for genocides. And when we started that back in 99, um, A, most people thought we were insane to think that you should even think about bringing a genocide case against the army in, in Guatemala at that time. And our argument was, well, you tell us we're in a democracy governed by the rule of law and everything else is, um, you know, the peace is here and everything else. And I said, well, if that's the case, then this shouldn't be a problem. 
And if it is a problem, it's time we knew about it and we should, you know, shine a light on that being a problem. That took five years out of my life anyway. Yeah. What, what was the evidence gathering process for that? How did you go about that? Well, I mean, basically like any kind of system crime or organised crime, so you're doing your crime-based evidence, which is obviously taken as far as possible from the, you know, the, any surviving eyewitnesses, which would often be very few by the time you got to that, because a lot of people would have been killed or they would have been very young at the age at the time the, the crimes were committed. But a lot of that, a lot of forensic evidence, exhumation of graves, have been more exhumations than I can care to remember. Um, and that obviously is, you know, quite compelling evidence in terms of the way in which executions were carried out and the kind of way you, know, you would still be able to get, you know, um, arms behind people's backs with the kind of ropes around their hands and all of that kind of evidence that was very graphic and telling. And then the kind of injuries on, on the heads and bullet wounds and all of that, you can tell if they're executed or in, in crossfire or whatever else. And then um, basically building up the evidence through uh, basically inside sources in the military that were prepared to give things like, so basically military orders are divided quite often into general and daily orders. And we were managed, we managed to get a hold of all of the army's general and daily orders from 78 to 83 through a source, which gave away an awful lot of information about command and control issues. And then as the years went on, more stuff leaked and more stuff came out and that could be authenticated. So it wasn't that hard. The truth is, in a country like Guatemala, though, you're in some at a certain point there's a tipping point because the supposition or the presumption on the part of people that do these things is one of institutional impunity. They just don't think that it's ever going to happen. So they increasingly take less care. to pre- Even at the time of the crimes, they take very little care to protect themselves. It's not like... You know, a sophisticated mafia organisation that's built to obscure evidence all the time. So once the politics moves and the institutional politics moves, you've got a much better chance and sometimes that's just a matter of time, but also getting your ducks in a row. Thank you for listening to this Hey Legal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To hear the full CPD qualifying content, please visit heylegal.co.uk to subscribe and join our community. Or you could ask your law firm to contact us for a firm-wide subscription. Learn more, be more with Hey Legal.